Thank you. Well, good morning, Falls Baptists. My name is Ryan Patty. This is my wife, Laura, and it is my joy and privilege to be able to... Oh, yeah. Oh, there you go. Yes. Sorry. They didn't tell me that, so... (laughs) Well, it's our privilege to be with you this morning and be able to hopefully faithfully proclaim the word to you this morning. Uh, As I was introduced, I am one of the pastors over at Christ Community Church, and so my wife and I have been married. We just celebrated this past Thursday, 10 years, and so uh, we have four little ones, and they're all over at the, at Christ Community right now, and so we be heading uh, back there afterwards to pick them up, Um, and so yes, we, uh, I oversee our youth and our family ministry over there, and we've been here since January of 18, and before that, as you'll hear a little bit, we were in Louisville, Kentucky for seminary for about four and a half years and uh, involved in some church revitalizations there. And then before that, I've lived a little bit of everywhere. So I'm sure I have most of you covered in here if you've lived elsewhere. So um, I hope that you have a Bible this morning. And if you do, please go ahead and uh, turn to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter three is where we are going to be. I mentioned earlier that for almost five years, Laura and I lived in Louisville, Kentucky, where I was going to seminary, and during our time there, you quickly come to realize that although there is something enticing and exciting about being in a seminary community, the effects of sin and the battle of spiritual warfare, like Paul talks about in Ephesians, is just as prevalent there, if not even more so. And one story in particular has always remained with me. It was of a husband and a wife who had moved to Louisville to attend seminary. Both of them were signed up to take classes. He was pursuing his MDiv for the pastorate, and she was pursuing a different master's to be able to benefit the church as well, where they hoped to one day be able to serve together. Until about a year in, when for reasons unknown to many of us, the husband ended up denouncing the faith. He withdrew from seminary, and he went to work at a hospital, and he told her that he would no longer be going to church since he no longer believed, and he encouraged her to do the same. On top of this, she found out that she was pregnant not long after, so she had a choice. Do I remain faithful to God and trust him to work in the midst of this situation to save my husband, or do I leave and follow him? Do I leave the church? Do I remain faithful to God and raise my child in the fear of the Lord? Or do I give in and follow him because it will be easier? How do I remain faithful to God knowing that my husband and I are now no longer united in the most important thing for a marriage? Well, over the next few years, one of the more encouraging things to us and many other families was seeing her continue to go to classes, to continue to be involved in church, and to continue to bring their son with her despite him not coming. She remained faithful to God. As she continued to live out 1 Peter 3 and honor her unbelieving husband, she had been presented with a major temptation to renounce her faith. And during that time, she had pressed all the more in to her relationship with God and her relationship with God's people. And this, friends, is a smaller yet similar picture of what we see happening in the book of Hebrews. Since we're jumping in this morning, I want to be able to provide just a brief background for you. Because what we'll see is that when pressure and persecutions mount, some renounce their faith and some remain faithful. Since we're, again, jumping into chapter 3, I hope that you're already there. I want to explain what happened in chapters 1 and 2. The book of Hebrews is written to encourage Jewish Christians who have left Judaism not to return to it. To not go back to their old way of life. 
to not return to that which is inferior. So it is written both for their encouragement and as a warning to what happens if they do renounce Christ. So chapter 1, if you're familiar with the book, opens with this glorious statement. You can look at it there about Jesus Christ that tells us that in the past God spoke through the prophets in order to communicate, but now he has spoken finally and definitively and authoritatively through his son, Jesus Christ. The revelation of the Son is God's final revelation to us. And then the author continues and he argues how Jesus is greater than and more superior to the angelic beings. That as the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, he's not a created being like an angel, but he is one with God himself. And not only is he truly God, but he's truly man. And that's the point of chapter 2, that as the Son of God who took on human flesh, who shared in flesh and blood like us, who humbled himself to the point of death, the author can now conclude at the end of chapter 2 that Jesus had to be like his brothers and sisters in every way so that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest in matters pertaining to God to make atonement for the sins of the people. For since he himself has suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are tempted." The text says that he had to in order to be faithful and merciful and able to help. Jesus Christ is able to help you this morning because he fully experienced the sufferings of humanity, the temptations that you and I give into, the difficulties of life under the sun. He experienced all of them, and yet he did not sin. And therefore, he is able to atone for your sin. He's able to provide for us and to be the sacrifice that we have to have. That's the point of Hebrews 1 and 2. So as we turn to chapter 3, I want us to recognize and see that this book, and in particular this section, is written to us. Written to us so that we might consider Jesus Christ, and in particular some amazing truths about him this morning. So that's the title of this morning's sermon. If you're taking notes, consider Jesus Consider Jesus. Therefore, let's look at Hebrews 3, and would you follow along as I read verses 1 to 6. The author writes, Therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. He was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was in all God's household. For Jesus is considered worthy of more glory than Moses, just as the builder has more honor than the house. Now every house is built by someone, but the one who built everything is God. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's household, as a testimony to what would be said in the future, but Christ was faithful as a son over his household, and we are that household if we hold on to our confidence and the hope in which we boast. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for the opportunity to be with Falls Baptist this morning. I pray now that you would turn our hearts and our minds to the study of your word. Father, may the words on my lips and the meditation of my heart be pleasing to you this morning. God, may we experience the beauty of Jesus Christ through this passage in Hebrews. It's in your sons that we pray. Amen. So my hope this morning is that for today and the coming days and the coming years, we who have experienced the joy and the love and the grace of having our hearts regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit so that we can now confess Jesus Christ as Lord might have our affections stirred this morning to consider Jesus more intentionally, more joyfully, and more faithfully. In order to do that, I have four things for us to consider from our passage this morning. And the first is this, simply put the title, Consider Jesus. 
Consider Jesus. Verse 1, Therefore, holy brothers and sisters, who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and the high priest of our confession. The main point of this passage is given in this first verse of the chapter. Therefore, the author writes, in light of everything I've said so far to you, everything I've expounded so far to you in chapters 1 and 2, in light of all of that, consider Jesus Christ. The audience is clearly the church, holy brothers and sisters who share a heavenly calling. And what is this calling? That's the effectual calling of God's saved and set-apart people. The heavenly calling given to Christ's bride, the church. What should these people do? They should consider Jesus Christ. You see, to consider means to give intentional thought to, to think upon, to fix our thoughts upon. There is an intentionality behind this consideration. I have learned over the years to consider my wife over the course of our marriage. When we go on a date, I have learned the astounding truth that she likes to be the recipient of my focus and my attention. So I have learned not to sit where there is a television in view. I know that I am prone to giving my focus and my attention to any sports game that is clearly visible right over her shoulder. I, think, I, I like to think I have self-control until that very moment. And according to her, I can go watch the game with my bros, that's her language, not mine, at a different time. But during that date, my focus and my attention needs to be on her. So what does the author of Hebrews want when he tells us to consider Christ? He wants for us to give intentional thought to, to think upon, to fix our thoughts upon that whom our faith is grounded in. To consider means to observe him. Observe the person of Christ, his character, his compassion, the fact that he is gentle and lowly and able to save to the uttermost. Consider the work of Christ this morning and all that he has accomplished for you on Calvary. Consider the salvation that he has secured for you. Do these things occupy your mind much? Do you consider or give intentional thought to Jesus Christ? Or much like I have to guard against when coming home from a long day and my kids want to play and they get my second or even my third hand attention. I don't focus on them like I should. Is that your relationship with Jesus this morning? Does he get your leftovers? Something you microwave up with a quick prayer when you need some help. Has he been put in the back seat or worse, the trunk while you get to drive wherever you want in life? You see, in a day and age where everything is vying for our attention like never before, it will take intentional effort for you to consider Jesus Christ. This is the verb of the verse. This is the command of what you are to do from this passage. Consider him. I understand life is busy. There are stresses in your marriage and with your kids. You're frustrated with things at work. You will possibly even have to see family members you don't like on vacation this summer. And those are just relational things. We have media confronting us nonstop. We struggle to put down our phone for a few minutes. Social media always needs to be checked or else we feel like we're missing out. I understand all of that. But friends, it is not an excuse for us. You are called to consider him. And I think each of us knows in our hearts that we can do this more. It is as Paul writes in Philippians 4, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, Whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any moral excellence and if there's anything praiseworthy, dwell on these things. Consider these things. What could be more true or honorable or just or pure or lovely or commendable than Jesus Christ, our risen Savior? Have you considered him lately? 
Or has your faith devolved into just going through the motions? Because when you're just going through the motions, then you're not intentionally running the race set before you. To use a swimming metaphor in the Christian life, you're either intentionally swimming in the right direction or you're drifting out to sea. There is no middle ground. There's no such thing as just floating in Christianity. You never just stay where you are. So may we be a people who desire to consider the things of God and consider Jesus Christ more and more throughout our lives. Secondly, though, what we see in this passage from Hebrews chapter 3 is that we should consider his faithfulness. So consider Jesus Christ, and next consider his faithfulness. Look at the end of verse 1. Consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. Verse 2, he was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was in all God's household. All of us know the reality that trust is earned, not given. Some of you have heard this saying as well, trust takes years to build, seconds to break, and forever to rebuild. For you to trust someone involves them acting in such a way that you admire or you respect or that you desire to imitate them. They are trustworthy. They are worthy of your trust. We've seen in this passage the call to consider Jesus and how everything else is flowing down from that. And now we see the first grounding as to why you should consider Jesus. Because he was faithful. Faithful to the one who appointed him. You can trust him because of his faithfulness. His track record is spotless. And who was it that appointed him? God the Father. And what was his given mission? What was he entrusted to do? To come and rescue and redeem a wayward people. To come and rescue and redeem you and I. You see, the text says that he was faithful as the apostle and high priest of our confession. So I want to consider each of those, those two things. And first, faithful as an apostle. This is the only time in the New Testament where Jesus is called an apostle. This is not to be understood as saying he is like one of the twelve apostles and being a disciple of God, but actually getting to the root of what apostolos means. It means to be sent, to be a messenger. Jesus Christ was sent out of love from the Father to obtain redemption and salvation for God's people. The Gospel of John is filled with the language of Jesus being sent by God. John chapter 3, For the one whom God sent speaks God's words, since he gives the Spirit without measure. John chapter 5, truly I tell you, anyone who hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not come under judgment, but has passed from death to life. John chapter 8, and if I do judge, my judgment is true because it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. And there are tons more that deal with this idea of Jesus being sent from the Father to come and do something. Jesus was very clear and his earthly ministry, that he was sent by the Father to preach the gospel, to work miracles, and to do the will of God. And in this office of apostle, he was faithful to the one who appointed him. He was faithful to, in the mission he was sent to do. He was faithful as an apostle. But second, in our Hebrews passage, it says that he was faithful as a high priest. The writer calls him the high priest. This is the specific office that is used the most throughout uh, the book of Hebrews for Jesus. And for those of us who don't know, the high priest was an office held in the Old Testament by a Levite who would get to enter into the Holy of Holies. That's where the manifest presence of God was and offer a sacrifice once a year for the sins of the people. And this sacrifice, according to the law, had to be perfect, without blemish, 
For any sacrifice, the Israelite was not to bring an offering to God that was cheap or worthless. They had to bring something really valuable, something perfect, something that he or she would otherwise treasure for himself. And this is definitely true of the sacrifice that the high priest makes once a year. So how was Jesus Christ faithful as a high priest? Because in God's beautiful wisdom, Jesus came as an intercessor like the priest of old, who would go between God and his people. He comes as that person, that high priest. He comes in complete perfection, in his love, in his mercy, in his sinlessness, his grace. He comes in all of this perfection, and instead of putting up something else on the altar or someone else as a sacrifice, he puts himself upon the altar. The lion is now the lamb. He lays down his life willingly for his people, willingly for you and I. Jesus is our high priest forever because of what took place on the cross. As it says later in the book of Hebrews in chapter 9, he entered the most holy place once for all time, not by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. Friends, this is why you and I don't have to offer a sacrifice today. It's why you don't need to bring a sacrifice when you enter in through the doors to come into church. The magnitude of Christ's death on the cross the wrath that he endured, the sufferings that he was afflicted with, all of it that took place at Calvary was the final sacrifice to be made before God the Father. It is as Hebrews 10 says, but this man, after offering one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. He sat down. That means his work is finished. He's in the presence of God to show that the sacrifice was accepted. He's now seated to show that the work is done. It is finished. His high priestly work was fulfilled. He was faithful to accomplish it. So what does this mean for you and I? How does Jesus being faithful as a high priest affect us today? Well, it means that there is now no more condemnation for those who are in Christ. It means that your sins have been washed by the blood of Christ. It means that you can rest from trying to please God with your good works or trying to earn salvation with your good works or trying to feel better about yourself with your good works because Jesus Christ, through his glorious atoning work, died for you. And as we have seen, the sacrifice was pleasing and accepted. So there is nothing you can add to your salvation. That's good news. It means, brothers and sisters, that when we sing, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. We can sing it truthfully and joyfully and faithfully and lovingly and gratefully because we know in our hearts and our souls that he really did pay it all. He was faithful to the one who sent him. Consider his faithfulness this morning. Have you experienced that? Has his faithfulness been applied to you personally? Thirdly, consider his superiority. Consider Jesus Christ, consider his faithfulness, and consider his superiority. Look with me at verses 3 to 6. For Jesus is considered worthy of more glory than Moses, just as the builder has more honor than the house. Now every house is built by someone, but the one who built everything is God. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's household, as a testimony to what would be said in the future, but Christ was faithful as a son over his household. I mentioned this earlier, but one of the focal points of Hebrews is to not turn back, to not denounce Christ, to not capitulate to current pressure, and for former Jews who had come to embrace Christ, this was a major temptation in the face of open hostility from other Jews. 
And part of this hostility would involve them denouncing Jesus, either by saying he was just a good teacher and not the Messiah, or by highlighting his crucifixion on a cross and pointing out there is no way that he's the Messiah in light of that happening. Or maybe there might be an acknowledgement that he was a prophet, but in Jewish thinking, he's still nowhere near Moses, God's chosen servant to lead their ancestors out of Egypt. You see, it is wired in us to recognize that which is superior. We easily recognize it. We understand that a car travels more efficiently than a horse and a buggy. We understand that a plane beats a car. We understand that a cell phone beats a rotary phone. And yes, I have used a rotary phone. We understand the superiority of pumpkin pie over any other pie. We understand the superiority of the Dallas Cowboys over any other team. You guys understand this, right? There are things that are easy to recognize as superior. And so when the Jews in this passage that he's answering, when the Jews put forth Moses as superior, well, the writer of Hebrews is going to have something to say about that. Because chapters 1 and 2 of the book highlight Christ's supreme glory. And now in verse 3 of chapter 3, the writer states point blankly, he's worthy of more glory than Moses. How is this? Because Moses was definitely worthy of some glory. He was given honor by God and by men. He was called to deliver God's people out of Egypt. He confronted earth's mightiest ruler at the time in Pharaoh and was used by God for miracle after miracle to deliver Israel in the Exodus. He was God's spokesperson for his people. God gave the law to Moses, inscribed the Ten Commandments, and gave those as well. And he even let his glory pass before him. No other human is close to Moses in terms of glory, as Jewish thinking goes. And so the writer says no. In fact, Jesus is worthy of more glory, for he is superior in every way. And then he uses this metaphor of building a house, and he says, Does not the person who designed the house, who laid the foundation of the house, who constructed the house and completed it, does he not have more glory than the house itself? Every house is built by someone, he says, but God is the one who built everything. Now, what's happening here is a little complex, but it is beautiful. The writer is making an argument for the superiority of Jesus, both from his human nature and his divine nature. In his human nature, he was faithful to God, as we have seen. He was faithful to the mission and faithful as a high priest to atone for God's people. But now he turns to Christ's deity, and he says that he was faithful because as the Son of God, he has built the house of the people of God. He's the builder of the house. He's the creator of all things. And so, yes, Moses was faithful. And yes, he deserves glory. But consider the majesty and glory of Jesus Christ, who isn't just a part of the people of God like Moses, but actually the Son of God who leads and receives the worship of the people of God. He isn't a part of the house like Moses. He built the house himself. It is, as it says in the hymn of Colossians 1, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and by him all things hold together. So his superiority is clear. Moses provided physical deliverance for the Israelites. Christ has provided eternal deliverance. Moses is part of the house. Christ is Lord of the house. Christ did more miracles, completed a greater work, and is truly God himself. Both were faithful. Both received glory. But as the writer of Hebrews is spelling out for us, one is clearly superior. Now, I don't think I have many former Jews in here listening to me this morning who are tempted to revert back to Judaism. But if you are, you can find me afterward. 
So you might be sitting here and you're agreeing with me saying, yes, I see all of that. I agree that Christ is greater than Moses. What does this have to do with me? I'm so glad you asked. Because as I mentioned earlier, the temptation to revert back to an old way of life is always present. Present for every single one of us. The temptation to be enticed with former sin is always around the corner. And unless we see Christ as superior, we will be prone to giving in. That's the real issue at stake here, the battle for our hearts. We worship what we love. The writer of Hebrews wants to point out, that the, superior, wants to point out the superiority of Christ so that, in order that, their hearts would be drawn to worship and they wouldn't denounce him, they wouldn't turn away. So we have to see the superiority of Christ over all things, vying for our worship, enticing us to sin, or we too can be tempted to renounce him. Tempted to look at something else for satisfaction. Tempted to fall back into the sin that we once left. Friends, practically speaking, do you see the superiority of Christ in your life? Do you really see it? Do you see it over a love for more money in your life and how nice that would be? Or getting that promotion at work? Do you see Christ as greater than your desire for recognition? Would you sacrifice him for those things? Do you see his superiority over your desire to be known or loved by another? Do you see him as greater than any earthly relationship, or would you sacrifice him for that perfect one? Do you see his superiority over your hope for your life, over your dreams and goals, or is there something out there that your heart deems greater? If you feel that if you had that one thing, you possess that one thing, knew that one person or was loved by that one person, then maybe, just maybe, that happiness would be better than what Christ offers. When your heart is tempted by those things, you must consider the superiority of Christ. He is greater than all other things that could ever seek to promise us rest or money or love or anything. Consider his superiority this morning, for it guards you from having a divided heart. Which brings us to our last point this morning. I've called us to consider Christ, to consider his faithfulness, to consider his superiority, and lastly, consider your confidence and hope. Consider three things concerning Jesus Christ, and now consider your confidence and hope. Look at verse 6 with me. But Christ was faithful as a son over his household, and we are that household if we hold on to our confidence and the hope in which we boast. The writer closes out his thoughts here with a conditional if. We are that household if we hold on to our confidence and hope. In my understanding of the warning passages of Hebrews, I don't think that apostasy or falling away is the point here. Rather, it's the positive. We show ourselves to be of the household by holding fast to our confidence and hope. This verse is descriptive of what a faithful believer looks like. His point is pastoral, and this was true for the Jewish recipients as well. They that have true faith, true hope, and true confidence will demonstrate those things to the very end and show themselves to be a part of the household of God. The same is true of our lives. And so we are told to hold on to two things, our confidence and our hope. Our confidence in light of the scope of the entire book of Hebrews speaks of the confidence we have in Christ as our high priest. That we now have access to God the Father because of Jesus Christ's atoning and sacrificial work. We have a blood-bought confidence. I pray that you know that this morning. 
That is, as it says in Hebrews 4, the next chapter, Therefore let us approach the throne of grace with boldness, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Likewise, chapter 10, So don't throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you need endurance, so that after you have done God's will, you may receive what was promised. Don't throw away your confidence, he tells them. But this morning, I've asked, you, I've asked us to consider Jesus, to consider his faithfulness, and to consider his superiority. But for this last point, my hope is that you would consider yourself, particularly your hope and your confidence. In keeping with Paul's command to examine ourselves in 2 Corinthians, we should consider our confidence and hope. Where are they this morning? Does considering Jesus this morning bring you to joy and wonder and praise of him? Sometimes it's hard to stop considering ourselves and our own circumstances for a moment and consider him, but that's exactly what we need to do. Or consider your life. There is no better time to do that than today. Consider your life over the past year. Do you behold the king in his glory and recognize that he calls you to submit everything in your life, every part of your life, to his lordship? It's sometimes hard for us to imagine because we don't live in a monarchy, but when a king is on the throne, that means that he is in complete control. He is the one who is in charge. Those who are part of his kingdom are to do his bidding, are to follow his decrees. So is he setting the trajectory of your life, or are you? Are you actively living for him, actively serving him? Our call to consider Christ this morning confronts all of us exactly where we are. How have we considered him? And how can we grow in considering him more? I pray, as I said earlier, that we would consider Jesus today and every day that he gives us life in this world intentionally, joyfully, and faithfully. Would you pray with me? Father, we praise you that you and your sovereign plan have uh, built a solid foundation on Jesus Christ in which the apostles continue to build, and now the church continues to build as well. Thank you for the beauty and the gift of your local church. Thank you for hearts in here that know you and love you, that have been regenerated by the power of your Holy Spirit, so they now profess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and seek to live faithfully, day by day, following him. Father, I don't want to assume, so if there's one in here that does not know you, I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would uh, convict them and regenerate their heart so they might be able to profess you as the one true God. They might be able to profess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. They would uh, repent of their sins and place their faith and their hope and their trust in you and you alone. God, we know that salvation is completely a work of you, and so we trust you to work this morning. For the rest of us, I pray, God, that as distracting as things are in this life, as everything is vying for our attention, God, help us to consider your Son, Jesus Christ, more and more. Help us to consider Him, to consider His faithfulness, and to consider His superiority. And help us then to recognize how that motivates us to live a holy life. We love you and we praise you. It's in your sons and we pray. Amen.